Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Nah. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Nah. Yeah, Deke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the DeeCast. I'm your host, Picatello, and today I'm here with Lorenzo of the Psychedelic Salon. Welcome, Lorenzo. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you today. Um, We just uh, spoke a little bit briefly here, and we were just saying that you were part of the lost generation um, (laughs) before the the boomers. And uh, why, why uh, why did they call it the lost generation? Actually, I think it, it actually goes back into the 30s and all the people that went over to Paris and all that. I was at the very end of it. You know, I was born in 42 and the baby boomers started in what, 45, 46, something like that. So so uh, I, I'm not quite sure why. Uh, just some people have told me that. And I said, well, you know, I've been stumbling around kind of lost for a long time. And, you know, I, I've taken the sort of the same trajectory you did. But I just took longer to do it. You're you're on a on speed dial for going through yeah, some of I, these things. Yeah, I guess that's the nature of my generation the millennials is we are kind of on uh, the sped up version of what uh you know happened before us um you know with this technology and all that yeah you don't really have a choice you know that uh when when uh i i grew up you know before there was television over you know most or half the country didn't even have television and uh i was i was like uh, 10 11 years old when we got television so uh i didn't even have a tv generation i grew up in the radio generation and believe it or not our family would sit around uh in the evenings uh, and listening to one or two radio programs you know uh, fever mcgee and molly and some of those things <laughs> and, and uh you know that that uh, it was a family affair to listen to the radio and we'd all have to be kind of quiet. And it's only recently I realized that uh, we used our imaginations a lot more because, you know, when they did the radio, you had to, you know, picture it in your mind. But, you know, we never talked about that. However, I, I do realize that when uh, we got older and then some of these uh, radio shows came on television, uh, we didn't we didn't like them. We didn't watch them. And, and I'm now thinking it's probably because we all have different images of what the people look like, what their houses look like. But uh, imagination was a really big thing. You know, radio is considered the, the theater of the mind. And that's why I like podcasting. You know, it takes me back to those old days. There. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's almost like the analogy people talk about reading books versus the movies nowadays, right? Where people kind of enjoy books most uh, often because they can imagine these things uh, in their own way. But uh, as you say that, I think uh, maybe almost myself, I feel like as a kid, I had, I don't know if that's just a kid versus adult thing, but I almost use my imagination a little more where now I've got video game plays stuck in my head and songs all the time like it's just the media has uh, infiltrated my brain uh, such that it's hard sometimes to use my own imagination almost yeah you know i'm not saying it's good or bad it's just what is we have to you know recognize what's going on yeah so can we give people a bit about your background um we'll just mention off the top that we mentioned the psychedelic salon is your podcast um you cover a wide range of topics there and you've been doing it for a long time um you talk a lot about guys like terrence mckenna i think you've interviewed ram Dass, different figures like that um and you often talk about the war on drugs and, and that kind of thing and i hope to get into all of that but could you give people uh sort of your backstory i know you've got like a rich history uh you know so i <laughs> Yeah, actually, you know that uh, I, I do the, the psychedelic salon, and, and uh, almost all my friends that I know are psychedelic. But I was 42 years old before I had my first uh, experience, other than uh, alcohol and caffeine and nicotine. Uh, you know, I was I was in that generation where you know uh, I, I was uh, actually living in San Francisco the the day of the BN. Uh, I was with the Navy at the time and had a wife and a three year old son, and we were at Golden Gate Park that morning and. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what was going on. All of a sudden, the park was different. We used to go there every Sunday morning, and all of a sudden, all these hippies were there. And so, so we didn't have to stay around. But uh, uh, I was on the straight and narrow then, and thought, you know, Timothy Leary is just ruining people's lives and all. And so that was that's been a long progression. So you know, I I was uh, an electrical engineer as an undergraduate, and I I got a, a dream job teaching sailing at Houston Yacht Club in the summer. So wound up uh, getting a, a doctor of jurisprudence degree at University of Houston. And uh, yeah, I had a deferment and everything like that. But then I got an offer to uh, sail on a square rig ship 
uh, across the Pacific in an old uh, three-masted wooden square rigger. So I, I took that job and, of course, lost my deferment, uh, wound up in the Navy and uh, spent uh, basically spent the 60s uh, in college and, and uh, you know, bumming around Europe and the Pacific for a year and then, <laughs> then Vietnam and, and uh, another big mission. So uh, I got out of, out of the Navy and went to finish law school, practice, started practicing law and uh, I hated it. I didn't like practicing law. So uh, I got into the computer business. I started the uh, one of the first personal computer businesses. And we had uh, we had had, uh, you know, over 3000 representatives in 17 states. And we were doing great. And and then uh, IBM decided they were going to get in the business. And they just wiped us out like a bug, you know. Hey, yeah. So, so uh, uh, but at the, the final days of uh, my computer business was in the, the 80s in Dallas. And long story short, a friend of mine uh, turned me on to MDMA, ecstasy, and I wound up going to the Stark Club. And to keep my computer company afloat, <coughs> I started selling drugs. <laughs> I was, you know, it was legal then. You know, when I started MDMA, I would never even have tried MDMA uh, if it had been illegal. You know, I was a straightener. I was a lawyer in Texas where people were getting 30 years to life for one joint, you know, and, you know, it's just not the thing I was going to do. Well, then I, I got MDMA, I went to the Start Club, and, and I started selling it <laughs> to, to pay the cash flow in my computer company. Uh, long story short, I wound up moving to Florida because uh, things were getting kind of dicey when they made it illegal. Uh, computer company crashed. Uh, so I went down, uh, became a tech writer, I worked as a legal assistant because I, I didn't have a law license in Florida. Uh, and I eventually wound up becoming the internet evangelist for Verizon. <laughs> and I got to travel all over the world, uh, you know, touting the internet. This is, this is in the early 90s when uh, uh, it was all dial up and stuff like that. So I was involved in the dot com bubble and all like that. And uh, long story short, it was uh, in uh, the summer of, uh, I don't know what, what it was, uh, must have been the summer of 98. I was. Uh, uh, reading this uh, brochure, I had some vacation, and uh, this guy named Terrence McKenna was uh, giving a, a lecture at Omega Institute. So I I, uh, I decided, hey, I'll go up there because I'd heard of McKenna through uh, Omni uh, or Mondo Two Thousand, the magazine Mondo Two Thousand uh, had this thing. I you know I by then you know I'd been doing mushrooms, and my friend had mushrooms grown in his farm out of town, and we did acid and stuff like that. But it was all, all low key. And I'd never even heard of DMT till I read this article in, in uh, Mondo. It's in the mid 90s. Long story short, I went to uh, Omega Institute, met Terrence McKenna, and uh, he told me about this uh, thing going on in Palenque in January. And so uh, I wound up in Palenque in January. And, and by June, I had uh, taken a leave of absence and moved to the West Coast. And uh, here I am. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I mean, it's a crazy, crazy life story. Um, you know, a lot going on. And when you met Terrence, for example, at that time, did it still feel like very much in sort of underground club feel like because we hadn't had the YouTube and that kind of explosion yet. So did it still feel like you're on the verge of something really interesting there? And there's sort of a almost exclusive it, club. It, it was more it was different from exclusive. It was it was kind of scary, you know, because uh, when, when I started the Psychedelic Salon podcast, it was in March of uh, 2005. Podcasting was only a few months old. And I almost didn't call it the Psychedelic Salon because the word psychedelic was so toxic at that time, you know. And uh, uh, I, I got my courage. Uh, actually, I, I talked to uh, Terrence McKenna and Sasha Shulgin both about it. And they said, the more public you get, the less uh, scrutiny you'll get, but people don't want to give you any publicity. And so just be out there. Don't worry about it. As long as you're not, you know, buying and selling and stuff like that. And since I'm a lawyer, you know, I know how to, I know about the statute of limitations. So I, I gave an extensive interview about my drug dealing days. It's, uh, it's on the front page of my website. And, uh, but, you know, the statute of limitations have passed and all those things. And I'm confident about things like that. So uh, I didn't worry about it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very different today, because, you know, we can have this conversation even and, and uh, back then, 
going to Palenque, which was down in the Chiapas and that in Mexico, down by the Yucatan Peninsula, that was uh, at a time when there was all the uprising down the Chiapas. There were the peasant revolt down, down, down there. And then here we're going down. I, I got a buddy at work to go down with me. And we're going down to the, the, the Chiapas to do a drug concert conference. And, you know, it was scary. I mean, we, we were really frightened. And, and uh, you know, the, we got down there. And it was just crazy to be frightened because this is like the fourth or fifth year they'd done it. And, and uh, at the, the last morning of the conference, you get around the pool, everybody's there, and, and Sasha Shulgin, uh pulls out this letter. He says, I just got this telegram. And he reads this dire telegram. The DEA knows we're down there and they're going to be checking us coming back. And, and everybody's starting to panic. And then the people who have been there before start laughing because he does the same thing every year. You know, wow. he did the same thing every year. So it, it was uh, uh, interesting because... Uh, people would bring drugs to the conference. You could bring drugs into Mexico pretty easily. Mm. <laughs> you just didn't want to bring anything home. And so those conferences in Palenque, uh, that, that's what really launched me is that, that conference. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to be more involved with these people. And uh, it was sort of like the, the start club on steroids, you know? Yeah. Um, so how have you seen things change or how, how have your expectations been vindicated or shattered uh, now that you see? Because we, we feel like there is, in some sense, an explosion of psychedelic use and acceptance um, in America and I guess worldwide, too. But there's still less than one percent, I think, uh, say, of Americans use, let's say, LSD uh, once a year. Um, so it's very, and you know, the, the NIH, I believe, still uh, says it's an addictive substance, though, although the science uh, kind of shows the opposite of that, as well as the experience of uh, users, we know that that's not necessarily the case. I mean, um, so uh, to make a long question uh, there, short, you know, uh, how have your expectations uh, uh either come to fruition or not like how do you i i i never expected anything close to what's going on right now i i figured i'd still be in the underground right yeah. now hmm. and uh you know things things have changed I'll, I'll give you an example of how things have changed for a lot of people when that first year in palenque paul stamets was one of the presenters down there and after that he stopped uh, going to psychedelic conferences because all of his work with the u.s army he, he developed a strain of mushrooms that detoxifies mustard gas and things like that. And he was doing all of this high level uh, defense work. And so he really couldn't be associated with the psychedelics and all. And uh, last time I saw him was like, uh, I guess it's now two years ago up at Orcas Island. And, and he gave uh, you know, psychedelic talks and he's talking about mushrooms freely and stuff like that. And so that's a huge change. He's become very prominent, of course, by now. And uh, so he feels freely to talk about it. Uh, the, the first big psilocybin uh, study, end of life study, is one that Dr. Uh, Charlie Grove did at UCLA. And uh, he's, it took him seven years to get approval for that study. Uh, and, and I'm really familiar with it because my wife was a research assistant on the study when it began. And, and uh, it took forever to get approval. And, and now you see uh, Harvard is back doing research again. Johns Hopkins is one of the leaders. UCLA is doing it uh, all over the world. Uh, and actually in the US is where the least amount of the research is being done. There's a lot of research being done in Switzerland, Israel, places like that. So uh, again, I don't think uh, you know, even 1% of the people using LSD is amazing. And that's probably enough to really keep things going. You know, when yeah. the, the, uh, the, the rights of Eleusis were going on uh, 3000 years ago, they said no more than, than 10, 15% of the people throughout history ever even participated in it. And that really brought Western civilization to the fore, you know? So uh, you don't need a whole lot of people to kind of break out. And that's what, what they really do is they, they break the barriers somewhat and, and get you uh, thinking, uh, you know, I, I've gone the same route. Uh, I, I, I was a, uh, I've been to a whole bunch of different religions and uh, now I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm like a friend of Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley had a friend who uh, didn't believe in life after death and, and uh, the same didn't have all those beliefs. And Aldous said, well, let's say you die and all of a sudden you find you've got an afterlife. What are you going to think? He says, I'm going to be really irritated. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be yeah, like if does it last forever, it'd be a little boring and all that 
kind of. Thing. Yeah, and and you know, the older I get, the less I'm interested in in an afterlife. You know, I'm 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 uh, I'm trying to wrap this one up. I have so many things I want to do yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that feeling of going to bed at the end of a tired day is kind of a great feeling, and uh, I don't. I, I suppose the actual moment of death can be um, arduous, um, but the concept behind it, sort of going to sleep after a long tired day is kind of appealing to be honest i don't know well you know my my father died of uh, he had prostate cancer that migrated to the bone and i was alone with him and holding his hand when he died and he'd been in a great deal of pain the morphine wasn't working very well anymore and, and he'd been in a great deal of pain and i was holding his hand and all of a sudden he just relaxed his features relaxed and smiled it was not a a horrible death at all it was just he was just relax he was at peace again so uh i'm not i'm not concerned about that at all that uh, you know what happens going to happen and yeah and it's not, not gonna last long <laughs> right and and i think death that mostly scares us because uh oftentimes or at least what we think of as death can be you know a terrible accident or something sudden like things like that that involve pain whereas um i'm not sure the percentage but there are a lot of deaths that are you know in your sleep or just after old age and um sort of in that, that natural uh, cycle of life thing yeah, I was I was much more concerned about it when I was your age, quite frankly. And and when I was in my 40s was when I really got concerned. You know, I started uh, doing all kinds of vitamins and stuff like that. And and uh, now, you know, I exercise. I walk a couple miles every day and I do some strength things and all. And I, I have a good diet. I do all my own cooking. So, you know, it's uh, it, it's not like I want to go anywhere or do anything. But I have several books I'm in the process. I've got one I'm going to finish in August and I've got a couple more coming out. And uh, I got some stuff I want to say. I, I realize not many people are going to hear it, not going many people are going to read it. But I did a couple things that I uh, like this: the sailing trip to Hawaii in a square rig sailing ship. You know, it was with Alan Villiers, who was uh, a very—he was at the time the most prominent uh, old sea captain still alive, and it was his last voyage. And uh, I actually took a whole bunch of slides, so I, I didn't know what to do with them, you know, because, you know, I've, I've shown them and stuff like that. But it was, uh, to me, it was a, an important thing. I'm going to turn them into NFTs and, uh, you know, and, and uh, put them out on the blockchain. And, and you can put things on the blockchain that are going to be self-perpetuating so that the NFTs will pay for the storage on the IPFS uh, blockchain. So I've got a couple things uh, like my my... Uh, Cruise will research for the lost submarine scorpion. I'm going to do that one too. And uh, I, those stories uh, will stay alive more than a book because, you know, the books, you know, I've, I've got all my books available for free in PDF format right now, but uh, that, that only means a hundred or so are ever going to be read. Yeah, <laughs> so, all right. So, but with the NFTs, if somebody is trading, you make a trading card uh, and, you know, I've got some, so I used to be a marketing guy. So I'm going to, uh, I want to keep the stories alive because my grandkids live in Florida and I haven't, haven't been able to subject them to all these stories. So I'm yeah. gonna, I want to save them somehow. <laughs> no, that's a great benefit of uh, these new technologies like that. Yeah. Um, so can you take us back? So you mentioned you were sort of a straight edge guy and then your friend turned you on to MDMA. So what pushed you over the edge? Was it just his uh, suggestion? He was a, you trusted him, that kind of thing. And, and what was your experience uh, initially? with? Uh, well, uh, he, he's, he's actually a lawyer, you know, and, and us lawyers are, are strange. We, almost every lawyer I know wanted to quit his job. There are very few that really like the work. And he, he uh, lives in Biloxi, Mississippi. And uh, he called me one day and he says, have you heard of ecstasy? And I says, no, what's that? And he says, well, it's ground zero is Dallas, Texas. That's where it's hit the streets. And uh, uh, he says, it's, it's legal. And that that's what got me. Had, had he not said it was legal, that would have been the end of the conversation. He says, you ought to check it out. And uh, I have a, a, a good friend of my wife, uh, my wife at the time, uh, was in that crowd. <laughs> and so I had lunch with her and, and uh, I said, hey, how do I get a hold of something? And she says, uh, well, you, you shouldn't do it by yourself since you've never done anything. So, uh, you know, she said, I, got, I have a date Friday night, but I have a friend. He can come over and he'll sit with you. Come over to my apartment and you got to spend the night and you can't go home, can't drive. And I said, OK, so uh, I went over. Long story short, uh, it changed my life. It it. it it uh, and I've I've helped you know hundreds of people on their their initial experience with it. That the most common thing people say about MDMA is, oh, I felt like this once before. You know, it's it's not like this 
you know, raving drug trip with everything's distorted. Uh, it's, it's just the most pleasant summer day feeling of childhood that, uh, that kind of thing. Right. And, uh, once I, I did that, uh, and then a week later, uh, she took me to the Stark club in Dallas, which is, uh, uh, it was described as burning man in a box. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that, that's where, uh, house music came before it was in Chicago or about the same time as Chicago. And, and so, uh, uh, the Stark Club was was so popular, so big that uh, Madonna moved to Dallas to be close to it. Uh, George Bush, George W. Bush went there, and and, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of famous musicians. But anybody that had ten dollars could get into the door. You know, it was a very strange place. Had one of the first chill spaces ever, and it was all techno music. So uh, yeah. this was in in the early eighties. You know, so it was uh, pretty new. Yeah, and, no. you know, there was just a scene. I said, hey, you know, there's a lot of people in this world having a great time. I'm not one of them. And uh, I became so a druggie. <laughs> How can I say? Yeah, no, no it's uh, interesting contrast uh, when you talk about getting into those, trying those substances later in life. Whereas uh, myself, I may have tried them a little too early, like uh, looking back, not that I regret it or whatever. And I'm, I'm at an OK place uh, here in this time and place. But uh you know, uh, that is a problem, I think. And maybe that ties into the illegality of things um, that younger people get a hold of these things in various ways that aren't the safest. And um, and they can be mixed with things and all kinds of different, uh, you know, like ecstasy pills were sort of famous for, the, for that. And then later came the more pure MDMA, which was apparently more safe and that kind of thing. Um, but maybe we could talk about that a bit, the war on drugs and sort of the safety and, and the addiction properties of these things and whether it's beneficial to really uh, encourage people to try this stuff. Because, you know, that's often a topic about, around this is uh, both should people try it, how to get them to try it, you know, whether they need to, is it beneficial and all that. I don't know what your thoughts are on all of that. I don't think anybody should be talked into trying it or even suggest. I think people should desperately want to try it before you even, uh, you know, get close to it. Per, right. per, it. Like in the case of ayahuasca, which, you know, when I first heard of it, uh, it was being called yahe and, and hardly anybody knew about it. It took me 10 years to make a, a, an ayahuasca connection. And, uh, you know, I was asking everybody everywhere. Uh, and all of a sudden it found me. And, and uh, the same with, with acid and some of these other things. Uh, what's really good now that is different from when I first started in the 80s is there's so much information out there. When, when I got into to it in, the, in uh, I guess it was in 84, the, the, uh, there was just no information. I went to the library and the only thing I could find about, about drugs in the Dallas <laughs> Public Library was the uh, Castaneda's books, uh, Carlos Castaneda's books uh, about Don Juan. Okay. And, uh, and uh, you know, and I, since then, uh, since living out here, I've met some people who were really closely associated with that. And, and Don Juan is a fictional character, a composite based on three or four people. But uh, that whole thing, that was my drug education. And, and then I, I had a few people in town that I could get a hold of, but we didn't, nobody knew what was going on. Uh, that's when Rick Doblin was first getting started. And Rick and I started a correspondence. That was about the only way I found things about MDMA uh, medically. Uh, and that was before he started MAPS. So, uh, you know, there was just no information. And now uh, you shouldn't, people shouldn't get in trouble if they've done their research. You, there's no way you should take a substance until you've been to Arrowhead. And uh, it, it, you read about the substances there. And the only thing I suggest you do at Arrowhead is if you are interested in a subject, you go look at that, that particular uh, substance and read the bad trip reports. Don't read the good ones. Uh, if <laughs> yeah. you, can, you can handle a good trip, but if you can't handle one of those bad trips, uh, you, should, you should find something else. And yeah. uh, quite frankly, uh, cannabis is... is uh, Marijuana, cannabis is changing so many things, uh, particularly in old people like me. Uh, the fastest growing demographic uh, population that's, that's taking up cannabis for the first time are people over 60. Uh, and and uh, what it does is it allows them to get off of all these horrible meds that they're on. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm almost 79 years old and I don't take a single prescription medicine. <laughs> I don't take any vitamins or supplements. You know, I, yeah. I eat really well. I cook my own food and I exercise. And, uh, you know, but but for a while, about uh, seven or eight years ago, my blood pressure got really high. And, 
the, the doctor uh, put me on this, this blood pressure medicine and it was horrible. I was, I was getting dizzy and, and uh, you know, it just wasn't working. So instead I went on a diet and lost uh, between 30 and 35 pounds. And uh, uh, at the same time, we started uh, testing CBD, 50-50 uh, CBD, THC and uh, got my blood pressure down. Uh, the weight was the big thing that got it down, but uh, I don't, I'm not on any meds. And uh, I have a friend who, well, he's actually the, uh, Dr. Grove's brother, who is a geriatric doctor up in Northern California. And he's uh, been able to get many, many of his uh, patients uh, off of, of their meds. And in some of the, uh, the assisted living homes where he's uh, been able to introduce medical marijuana, <laughs> people's appetites have come back. They start playing cards and, and it's really changing people's lives. If you can get them off of these horrible prescription meds with all the side effects, you know, that's what yeah. killed my dad. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it feels like I've seen various points of breakthrough in my life, especially in the last 10, 20 years, uh, as far as the acceptance of these things and the benefits of them, but it still feels like there's a major, major breakthrough or a more mainstream breakthrough that needs to happen specifically with psychedelics and say MDMA acid and mushrooms and, and those things. Um, I sort of look at ayahuasca and team tea as sort of the next level after that, where really serious uh, people, adventurers might want to try. But uh, I think that uh, acid and mushrooms in particular are sort of relatively safe, uh, easy to try and in the right setting. And that may be a good uh, of the lot. They may be the, the better ones um, if you're going to try to try one, you know, again, in the right set and setting and all that. Um, now, some people look at these things as, you know, you're just getting high, you're just having a good time, you just see funny colors and that kind of thing. And we, we often say that it's hard to put these experiences into words. Um, and even those are words. So it's, uh, you know, how do you um, explain these things to people who've never tried it? Or do you ever bother to try that? Or is it more of a, you know, your, your, your experience is yours and, and they can have theirs when they have it? Well, in the beginning, of course, I tried to describe my trips. And then, then after I started listening to other people's trips, I learned how boring it was. It's like a dream, you know, unless exactly. you have to it's be like there. Dream. Yes. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear somebody else's dream. No. Somebody else's and trip. and uh, so, so, you know, you really, you really can't. And, and uh, Terrence McKenna describes the, the two types of people as the, the, the psychedelic tourists that'll take, uh, you know, a, a quarter of a tab of acid and, and say they, they're uh, acid head. And then the guy who, uh, you know, like somebody going to France and they change planes in the, in the airport in Paris and they say, I've been to France. And the other guy moves to France, marries a local, learns the language, teaches in the school. That guy's been to France, you know. So yeah. uh, it's the difference between a psychedelic psychonaut and a psychedelic tourist. And uh, the, the, the ayahuasca thing, uh, you're right. It's, it's uh, the people who are more serious, but the big uh, groups of people that are going to the jungle right now are a lot of uh, military veterans. There's a number of military groups taking people down uh, for PTSD work. Uh, MAPS now has their phase three study uh, underway for MDMA and PTSD. And uh, I know I know a number of people who have just had miraculous uh, help with, with uh, PTSD. Uh, you know, it, there are major corporations now who have full-time positions teaching people how to microdose mushrooms and acid. As far as PTSD goes, I mean, that's like... Uh... Risk benefit analysis there tells you that uh, you, if we've got these tools, we better use them because PTSD is not, I don't experience that myself, but from what I glean, it's no joke. I mean, especially like you mentioned veterans. Um, I mean, the, the types of um, traumatic things that they've experienced in that, uh, you know, it doesn't, it, of course it leads to suicide and different things. I mean, if their life is already going in such a bad direction, I mean, something, uh, you know, with these levels of safety, Again, not to say that they're completely 100% safe, uh, you know, almost nothing is, but um, relatively speaking, you know, and this is brought up many times, but we've got, you know, alcohol is a ubiquitous uh, substance, uh, you know, globally, uh, you know, and um, obviously many dangers uh, with a substance like that. So well, with, with alcohol and LSD uh, in the in the 50s and early 60s, there were uh, somewhere around 3,000 papers written about uh, curing alcoholism with PTSD. And up in Canada, they had, uh, at the clinics up there, they had uh, something like uh, 60 to 80% uh, 
rate of curing people from, from alcoholism with LSD. Uh, then of course, all that research came to a halt. Uh, the same, same thing with, uh, with, uh, uh, mushrooms. They're, they're now, uh, you know, doing, uh, microdosing mushrooms, but the, the, uh, alcoholism and PTSD, there's a lot of ways that I think that eventually psychedelics are going to solve these problems or, or cure some. And PTSD isn't just for people who've been in the military. Uh, the rape victims are, are, you know, they have horrible lives, you know, that, that some of them can never leave the house. Uh, and I did a podcast with a, with a woman who had spent like uh, 10, 12 years without leaving her house. She'd been uh, raped as a child and like that. And uh, she went through the MAPS program and now she's appearing on CNN and, and traveling the world, uh, country talking about uh, she She actually uh, tried to uh, sign up for their uh, follow-up study and didn't have any symptoms of PTSD and didn't qualify. So, you know, there there's our answers. And now that the big institutions are behind it again, uh, the other thing is the FDA approval is coming so much faster because your generation and the one just ahead of you are taking over these positions now and you're not so blinded like we are. So yeah, that's a yeah. generational thing as well. That's an interesting phenomenon where the actual personnel who sort of run the world change and along with it, they bring their, like you said, their uh, sentiments from their generation, right? Um yeah, like you said, access to information, all that. We're a little more rational we look, when we look at these things, a little less susceptible to um, propaganda and right. things of the past, right? Uh, well, you have the internet, so you can actually disintermediate some of these uh, media companies. And, and that doesn't mean you're going you're gonna to find out the, the truth all the time, but at least you can poke around and find different sides to a story, you know? Yeah, totally. That's totally true. So um, with Rick Doblin, with the maps, um, that what's the latest uh like we mentioned johns hopkins is a center uh for psychedelic research um maps does is a similar body right they just do strictly psychedelic research or maps is was was uh originally uh rick actually went over to the world health organization in uh Geez, this must have been around 85 or 86. I've got a copy of the article trying to get them to uh, uh, study MDMA for PTSD, among other things. So it has been his life's mission to uh, to get this done, to get it approved. And uh, he's he's been a, a one man band for a long time. He's he's literally raised millions of dollars. And MAPS doesn't do the research, but they sponsor the, the research. They, uh, they sponsor right. the PhDs and the MDs and like that. And now they have this phase three study that's, uh, they, they, they've, uh, they have approval, their, their therapists have, they've had approval to train their therapists by giving them MDMA. And that's something that, that hadn't been done before, where uh, if you're going to do LSD therapy and you've never taken LSD, well, you're not somebody I go to, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so they, they've really—it's the protocols that they've—they've they've really put into place. Now, uh, I—you know—I'm a lawyer, so I can argue both sides of all these things. And and uh, you know, I know that a lot of cities now are legalizing psilocybin, and there's there's these psilocybin, you know doctors that are popping up you know somebody else have a mushroom trip and think they're a psilocybin therapist well there's a lot more to therapy than just taking a pill and sure the, right. the, the, the reason mdma has been pushed back by the pharmaceutical companies is because like this woman who who was totally cured of severe ptsd in her lifetime has now taken three 120 milligram doses of M mdma you know, you can't keep selling the pills, but it's also with the therapist there. And the, the other thing about the therapy that they're doing that's unique is every therapy session has a, a man and a woman both. Uh, so you have a, a, a balance there uh, and you don't have any, uh, any untold things with MDMA, you know, you can get into a love puddle and stuff like that if you're not careful. And so right. Like it's that. a strange, yeah, it does affect yeah. you in a strange, unique way. So that's interesting. The, the protocols have to be in place such that uh, it's, it makes it a comfortable, uh, successful environment. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I uh, had a lot of complaints about the FDA and, and all the approval process and all, but uh, in talking with Rick, Rick has said that uh, actually over the years, and Charlie Grove has told me the same thing, that the, the uh, when they kick back these protocols and say, no, well, what about this? What about that? He said that 
they both said that the questions they've asked have really strengthened the protocols and made them much better. So that uh, while, while it is a bureaucratic nightmare, it's moving faster and uh, we're making some progress. So I, I really think that uh, by the time you're my age, you know, we won't, it'll be like aspirin. You won't be talking about. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's so interesting to think about, uh, you know, if that really will be the case. I mean, the other things they say about that is, you know, when my, when, when my group is, uh, your age, we'll have 20 extra years in our life expectancy, right? Because of medicine and that. And um, it's it's hard to imagine like uh, what the real outcomes will be. You know, will things just chug along and slowly move or because even when the map stuff um, and first started coming out, I remember the initial perception was, OK, we've made it like here we are like this is the next level. Um, whereas there's there's just still research to be done and it takes time. It's not something that happens overnight. Um, but that will be interesting to see if it does become more uh, more prevalent. Well, you know, the other the other issue that's coming out now that is not a, a happy one is the commercialization of all this. You know, some big businesses look what's happening in cannabis. Marijuana has become a mess, you know, and uh, you know, there's some huge companies that now the tobacco companies are getting into marijuana farming and uh, the same thing. You know, the, the I was complain I was against the uh, uh, legalization uh, proposition 64 here in California because of all the regulations mm-hmm. but and, and they are very onerous but uh, the the canvas I get now first of all I, 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 I go out to a website and I order it with my credit card <laughs> and it's delivered the next morning to my door okay yeah, and I have convenient, yeah I have you know a range of hundreds and hundreds of, of choices and and so that's something I never dreamt was possible because I used to drive down to, you know, a part of town I didn't like. And I come home with this, this ragweed and I have to separate all the, you know, get the, yeah. the seeds out and everything. And uh, so, so that has changed so dramatically. The other thing that, that I'm aware of because I've been doing this for, you know, the last 16 years is people are so freely speaking about psychedelics. When I first started one of my dreams was that people could go around the water cooler at work and talk about psychedelics. It'd be mainstream enough. I, the, the guy I went to uh, Palenque with, a guy I worked with, we had had lunch together every day for maybe half a year or more before we admitted to one another that we smoked pot. Yeah. And that's how, that's how, how subdued everything, subversive things were. It was horrible. And so things have changed dramatically. Now, are they going to keep changing like that? Well, when I was growing up, uh, uh, Dick Tracy two-way wrist radio in the comic books was was fantasy. And none of us, we all wanted one, but none of us believed we would ever really have something like that. So here we are, you know. I get, yeah, anything's possible. And like you said, if the history is any trajectory, uh, you know, indication of the trajectory, uh, yeah. That's very, very possible. You know, that that, that, uh, 50 years from now is impossible. You can't predict five years from now, let alone five months from now. You know, so we're on a wave and all you can do is keep your balance. You know, don't let it crash over you. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of friends of mine that I in my head, I tell myself it's my life goal to get them to try, say, mushrooms once because they're such smart guys interesting guys that you just know if they took that thing there there something would click and they just have these great insights not that they don't have great insights right now um but you just want to sometimes see the potential of some people uh with that little added extra boost um and uh so back to sort of the language we used to describe it i i find myself in these long conversations on occasion with these uh few individuals and uh i think i'm getting there i'm sort of cracking them but uh you know, people have apprehensions about uh, uh, these things, but they're intrigued, you know. But, you know, the, the, the misinformation we pick up as children sticks with us a lot longer than we realize. That My friend that turned me on to MDMA, uh, who lives in Mississippi, and I used to supply him with MDMA, and he and I smoked a lot of pot together. He has never tried LSD or anything but MDMA and pot. He is terrified of trying LSD because he thinks he would lose his mind and go insane. So I understand where your friends are coming with uh, from. And in fact, I was there. My my first acid trip was uh, after I'd moved to Florida. My uh, I'd had this window pane somebody had given me and I'd never tried it yet. 
And uh, so, so one day I, I told my, my now ex-wife, I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And she was, she was going to wait out. She, you know, we had a, a two-story house. I was going to do it upstairs in the bedroom. She was waiting outside. And, and I said, it's going to be a long time. And, and I, we both talked about the fact I may never come back. This may be it. I may, you know, we really believe that was a possibility, yes. but I just wanted to do it so, so badly that I, I did it. And until you get that kind of a desire, uh, you're wasting your breath. Uh, <laughs> telling yeah, your That's a good point. It. It's a very good point. So maybe I just need to chill on. Uh, yeah, I, I would if I were, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, me, myself as well, uh, you know, I've had a couple of bad trips and, you know, uh, even some that were just so strange that I sort of had the, what they call a flashback, but I don't know if it was, you know, the substance was still in my brain or however they did try to define flashbacks. For me, it was these odd sort of, I'd be watching a movie and something in the script of the movie would relate conceptually to the experience that I had whether it's about duality or some, some, some concept. Um, and that sort of thing in the movie would trigger me into that mindset again. Not really a sort of like, I think when people think of flashbacks, they think, oh, you get, you know, the colors get crazy and you get dizzy or something like that. No, not really. It's more of a reminding, like the casting of a stone or what do they call it when you skip a stone across the water, mm. right? That To me, that's what it's sort of, I don't know if that does it. It's, it's, it's sort of, you're, you're, what you're describing sounds more like deja vu. In a sense, yeah, it was very much like a deja vu, and I, I I call that my flashback just because maybe I haven't experienced uh, the typical flashback that people have. But um, yeah, that was a very strange thing for me, and I remember specifically, I had them a couple times. So I told myself uh, I was going to quit smoking weed because I think a couple of them happened when I was smoking weed, and then sure enough, I had them when I was sober. So that was the like a like a a case study for myself that I was like, Hey, this is, this is, there's something very peculiar about this because I've quit the substances and I'm still getting this sort of um, repetition of my experience. So those things and other things, uh, you know, people listening, if they've had those experiences, they'll kind of know what we're talking about and some might not, but um, yeah, again, just very out of this world uh, type of things can happen. You know, I, I, I really, I can't relate to it. And, you know, I've done literally, hundreds of acid trips, several hundred, and, and some some over a thousand mics. I've never once had a flashback. Hmm. Uh, and, and several of us now, we're trying to uh, get away from saying we had a bad trip and say we had difficult trips. Yes, uh, I've, I've seen people that have had bad trips <laughs> and I've never had one of them. I've had some really challenging and difficult trips, but, but uh, I remember this one guy had, had this, this horrible trip. Uh, and it was actually an ayahuasca where, where he was just screaming. We had to take him out of the house and, and, you know, he was just screaming and it was just horrible. And the next morning in our circle, he's describing, he had this crown of thorns and thorns coming out of his eyes and his flesh being ripped off. And, and, and then all of a sudden his face turns very blissful and he says, it was the most incredible, wonderful experience in my life. You know, I thought, oh, fuck me. <laughs> you know? yeah. No, thank you. No, right. thank you. Well, well, that, that's another interesting thing. And I, I try to explain this as well to people that uh, the, the challenging trips, even though they have negative aspects to them, for some strange reason, there's something, like you said, blissful about them, or there's always a lesson to be learned or something. Um, I had a weird thing about a year ago where uh, my fiance and I were hanging out watching a movie and um, I had one THC pill that someone had given me. Now we've tried this same batch of pills. They were very mild doses. Some of our friends have had two or three at once. It wasn't like a special pill or I don't think it was, uh, you know, took one of those and had a very odd reaction uh, where I, I sort of was shaking. I, my body was sort of convulsing, like, you know, and again, this is not ayahuasca or psychedelic. This is just a THC pill, a run-of-the-mill thing. Um, can't really explain it, but she says that was one of the scariest times ever. You know, she had to calm me down. I was, uh, but I look back at it, and she kind of well, hit me in the side because I'll say like, I loved it so. It was such a great 
experience. Was, no, it wasn't. You were shaking. You were convulsing. Like you, you didn't. You were not having a good time. But I have this, you know, perspective of no. It was like amazing. Like I went to heaven and I saw God. And in this span of thirty minutes on this THC pill, I, I don't know why. Because again, I've I occasionally smoked marijuana and these things, and it, this was just a average pill. But I don't know why it hit me hard that day. And that doesn't sound average. It sounds like an adulterated pill <laughs> to me. Now, but... <laughs> now, who knows why the combination? What, what your your biochemistry, your metabolism, yeah, set and setting, you know, music that was on, you know, that uh, there's there's all these things. But uh, I would I would get a different brand next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I still have. I think I have one of them here. And as a joke, I always say I'll. One day I'll try it again. And she goes, you better not. But yeah, it's, um, again, just don't just, give it to anybody. <laughs> no, 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 no. And again, it just speaks to the sort of, uh, you know, you don't always know what you're going to get tonight. That, that right. Kind of thing. Oh, that's true. That's very true. And, and, you know, if, if with psychedelics, if, if you are not scared shitless going into your next experience, then you're not doing it right. You know, and, uh, people, you know, I've done, I have over 300 Terrence McKenna podcasts on, or talks on my show. So I've heard a lot of them. And what people don't realize about Terrence McKenna is he, he said, you know, he does one or two or maybe three big psychedelic trips a year. He wasn't doing psychedelics all week long and everything like that. And, and uh, most of the people who really do it to get something out of it intellectually, spiritually, however you want to define it, are, are people who do it occasionally, but they, they, they do it right. They have the right setting. They've been working on their, their mindset for a while. They've got the phone off the hook, things like this. So it, it's, it's not a matter of just uh, going crazy all the time. I, I remember one time at a, a conference, uh, somebody came up to one of the speakers afterwards and, and she was a, a young girl and she had, you know, multicolored hair and piercings all over and she just couldn't stop moving. She was just going crazy. And, and she asked this guy, she said, how come my parents won't try psychedelics? And she, he said, because they're afraid they'll turn out like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, that's uh, very true. That's very true. Uh, I, I've found with the most recent time uh, me and my fiance did uh, LSD, it was a half a tab. And I found that was, I was worried it wasn't going to be enough because in high school days and that, I remember one or two was, a, you know, the or if three, if you want to get really crazy. But yeah, we did a half and I was like, you know what, that is, it was just a perfect, you know, it's like mm -hmm. a six pack of beer, beer. It's like yeah. three or four beers instead of a two, four, um, you know, if a 9% beer, like, uh, you've got to, yeah, you've got to watch the doses and the uh, set and setting. And, um, what she says, yeah. that was the greatest day of her life. Uh, you yeah, know, that, that's a, a little bit more than a microdose, but, but yes. I know what you mean because, uh, I, I, uh, when I, I, uh, the last six months of working on, uh, the spirit of the internet, when I was writing that I was microdosing. And what I, I found is that your, your concentration expands you have a, a wider range you, it's like if you're a programmer you can keep five subroutines in your mind at the same time knowing how they're interacting with one another and that's that's microdosing if you're a computer programmer or a writer or an artist uh can be very beneficial once you learn how to do it you don't want to start out just microdosing you want to know something about the substance and your relation to it and how you react with it and all too but uh over time uh that's going to be taught in school so it's being taught in corporate workshops right now yeah, that's so interesting. Um, jumping back to Terrence McKenna, um, what are some more um, of the, like, what are the, because he's such a fascinating guy uh, to me, always has been, obviously eloquent with his words and uh, his experience is vast. He was an ethnobotanist, uh, you know, he's many things. I'm sure he was self-taught in various um, subjects and um, interested in things like the I Ching and all of these. He was always, he always had some reference to some, ancient book or something you'd never heard of that, you know, he was privy to. Um, and of course his brother, Dennis, uh, you know, does a lot of great work too, but um, what are some of the most interesting things that you sort of uh, learned from him or through his talks? You mentioned you have so many uh, on your uh, podcast there. Well, you know, Terrence, uh, first of all, he, he tried to make sure people didn't take him too seriously. You know, that, uh, how, how he really became popular back in the late 70s and early 80s is, is he was going around to living rooms and he was talking about uh, psychedelics. You know, nobody else was talking about it. There was no literature. There's no way to find it. And then he and Dennis, you know, wrote the Mushroom Growers Guide. And that's what really broke mushroom growing open. And so he would go around. And the only way you could find out about a lot of these things was to get a bootleg tape of one of Terrence's talks. 
And that's how he became so popular. Then it was in uh, 1983 at uh, UC uh, Santa Barbara. There was a psychedelic conference there that had uh, Richard Evans Schultes, Albert Hoffman, all the big names there. And uh, my wife, my, my, the woman who's my wife now is there with, with a friend of ours who's a doctor. That was her boyfriend at the time. And they were at that conference and they were, they were there and it was Richard Evans Schultes and Hoffman and everything. And toward the end of the conference, the organizer got up and says, you know, so-and-so uh, couldn't make it, the plane didn't make it or something. So we've got a, a last term, uh, a, fill in here, but I think you're going to like this guy, Terrence McKenna. Nobody remembered anything from the conference except Terrence's wow, talk, yeah. <laughs> the people that I've been to. Now, in my podcast number 100, I brought I podcast that talk and also the talk that day that uh, Sasha Shulgin gave. And that talk was very important to me because when I first started doing MDMA, uh, when I started dealing it, the guy that that uh, got me involved uh, gave me this literature to read. So I would, you know, what little literature there was. And it was a mimeograph, literally mimeograph copy of Shulgin's talk at that thing. And that was the only psychedelic literature I had my hands on at the time. So uh, those two talks are really uh, important to me. And, and Terrence really just, uh, you know, he didn't give too many organized lectures. His, his talks were all... Uh, People would ask questions and he'd go off. He had the most brilliant mind and memory. He could, he could quote books and obscure authors. Uh, he just, he just, he was, he read everything he could get his hands on and remembered it. And that was the big thing. And, you know, he, he changed a lot of his opinions like we all do throughout life. And so people sometimes will say, well, Terrence said this, but, you know, maybe five years later, he changed his mind. But he, he also, uh, could be a really funny guy. Yeah. One of, one of my favorite stories is when he was, a uh, he was in charge of a house of, of people renting at Berkeley when he was a student there and it was vacation, Christmas vacation, everybody went home or Thanksgiving or something. And he was there uh, by himself, I think. And he decided to do some, some acid. And uh, I can't remember how the whole story evolved, but uh, something went wrong. Uh, Somebody who was with him went wrong and got sick and they had to call 911. I can't remember exactly, but the police go down to the front door and it was locked and he's on the other side of the door and they're saying, open the door, open the door. And he couldn't get it unlocked. And he's just totally fucked up. And he says, he says, I'm standing aside, shoot the lockout. <laughs> yeah. And so I can just see him doing this, you know, uh, that, that he had a lot of funny stories too, but, but basically he was just a, an encyclopedia of knowledge before Arrowwood came around, you know? Oh yeah. I was going to say like something about, and it's unfortunate his time was short, short lived. Um, when he passed away, was it, was it before the millennium that he even passed? Is it, it was in April of 2000. Right. So he just made it to the millennium. But yeah, he he's just obviously seemed ahead of his time. But he, but the, the specifically you mentioned early the dot com bubble in that time period it was very interesting for a guy like him to to come around and talk about the things he was talking about, because it, it's, it went very deep, like into the psyche, into the self and society and uh, technology and how we integrate with technology it was just sort of a perfect um, whirlwind scenario there for him. Um, yeah, he was. Uh, and yeah, like he was. He was really into science and technology. He read Scientific American faithfully, you know, and read a lot of the manuals. And when the when the World Wide Web came out, uh, it just just blew him away, you know, because what he was, uh, you know, he would travel, you know, from Hawaii. He'd fly to New York and give a, a weekend workshop for sixty people. And, you know, it, it's not energy efficient. It wasn't efficient for him, you know. And so he started working with Bruce Damer. And they were going to try to make all of his workshops like what we're doing here, Zoom type things. And uh, uh, so uh, actually, Bruce was over there and they did the first uh, uh, with Terrence online uh, in a uh, over. A, uh, I can't remember the name of the technology they're using. And that was just a few weeks before he had a seizure and, and it all ended. But Terrence wanted to get off the road and start doing things from a technological uh, perspective instead. Uh, so he, he just saw the potential uh, of getting people connected. And you've probably heard his story about his his ultimate uh, fantasy is that one day we'd all be uh, living naked in the rainforest 
and we'd pick up a flower and we'd smell it and we'd shut our eyes and the, the lids would come down and we would be transported into a, a concert hall in Paris for an opera, you know, stuff like that. And that, that was his dream of technology. But like you say, he also had the whole deep psychedelic thing in because, uh, you know, that was his uh, DMT was his big thing as a young young college student. And, you know, he was doing DMT for a decade before I heard the, even the acronym. <laughs> yeah, no. I, and, and like you said, too, um, you know, people may dismiss him if they just hear certain parts of what he said or he did make certain predictions. It may not have come true and that kind of thing, with, uh, whether it's time wave zero or a specific date or things like that. But I think that psychedelics. I mean, I, I consider him a genius still, but psychedelics can also make us, even for a smart person, go down these strange pathways of imagination and, and uh, making up theories and stuff. Um, but I think a lot of what he said was important. And it is subtle stuff, though. It's hard. Even if you listen to hours of his lectures, sometimes it's hard to grasp. Okay, what is he really talking about? He reminds me of Krishnamurti in that way, where uh, uh, just... They have very simple, subtle things that they're saying, but the way that the, the metaphors and the way that they're explaining them are very intricate and in-depth. And so if you're not paying enough attention or if you're trying to add in your own concepts and theories over top of what they're saying, it gets muddied and confusing. But um, And I don't know if you know that comparison at all. I just feel for me, he's very much like a Krishnamurti figure. Uh, uh, Krishnamurti talked about truth in action and um, sort of raw basic concepts like that uh, relationship about two people meeting each other but not fully meeting because you're always meeting an image of them different things like that that uh, people if they first listen and go what the heck are these guys talking about but um did, did you know, does that make any sense at all you know the yeah yeah you know yeah, yeah. chris murdy is a, a good example too is it's, it's like they're trying to carve a statue out of jello you know and it's just keeps morphing a little bit right right but, but, I, I can't speak for Chris Murdy, but uh, Terrence, his his whole concept was to get people thinking about the shape that he's trying to make, but uh, not focus on the shape, but to use their own hands to make that shape. Ah, oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, and, I didn't and, think about it like that. Huh. Yeah, yeah. He's he he wasn't a, a dogmatist. He he didn't really want people following him. He just wanted people to start thinking for themselves and questioning authority, like Tim Leary said years earlier. You know. So uh, I, I think that, that he just wanted people to wake up and start paying attention to what's going on. Totally. And I think he did that for me, um, you know, guys like him. And um, you've, you've interviewed Ram Dass on occasion. Is that, is that true? I, I didn't, didn't interview him. I've, I've met Ram Dass, and, oh. uh, but, but I didn't, didn't uh, interview him. I, I played a, a talk that he gave, uh, uh, a couple of talks, I guess, that he's given. But uh, what do you, for people who don't know Ram Dass, like, what do you think is some of the most important things that he said <coughs> about? Uh... Well, you know, uh, how, how did he say, you know, that, uh, the, the way to uh, paraphrase Ramdas is wherever you are, be there. <laughs> yeah. Now, is that, uh, again, people who maybe are adverse to the woo-woo spiritual stuff would kind of dismiss those things like the Eckhart Tolle thing about be here now and all that as sort of, I don't know what the word would be, but well, too, yeah, too basic of a concept. Like, what, what do you think that means? But that, where, wherever you are, be here, be there. Uh, right now, if, if you are, say you're, you're uh, in a restaurant and there's some casual talk going on and you might be thinking about something you're going to do later in the day, you are not there in the restaurant right. or wh wherever you are. Uh, and the older I get, the more difficult it is. My concentration uh, powers are, are getting weaker. Uh, the upside of that is that it makes me stand up and walk around more often. So, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I, I think that well, well, you you hit on it earlier when you're talking about it's very difficult to talk about some of these things. So it, it, some of them are ineffable. And, you know, uh, Sasha Shulgin has a, a rating scale about psychedelics, uh, one to five. And a one is something, and that's how he always started. He always started with just tiny microdoses with, you know, he invented all these new substances. So he'd work his way up. And when he got a first little tingle, if you got no tingle, there was, there was no psychedelic activity, but got a little tingle, that was a one. <clears throat> All the way up to a five is a plus five experience is one of those things where you just, you come back and you say, I don't know why I know this, but everything's perfect. The world is fine. It's glorious. 
I can't tell you a thing about the trip, though. That's that's a plus. <laughs> totally ineffable. A plus four is where you're you're in and out a little bit of that. You you can bring a few things back. A plus two is something that okay, I'm in psychedelics now, but beware the dreaded underdose. To me, you do the work at a plus three because yeah. that's where it's you're you have an intention. You're not getting so far out that you're going to lose everything, but you're getting far enough in that you're going to have to do some difficult work, or you're going to have some great joy, both of them probably. But uh, when people say they they want a, a heroic dose, to me, a heroic dose is a plus three trip where you have to do the work. Yeah, yeah, it's it can be a daunting task, that's for sure. Uh, you mentioned um, so we talk about this be here now type concept. Um, obviously, today we're dealing with this uh, epidemic of the phones, the cell phones, uh, the companies behind them that are developing these algorithms to keep our attention. First thing we do when we wake up in the morning is we check them because we want to, we're addicted to the news cycle. We want to see what's next. So we grab our phones to see what's in the news and what are people saying and that kind of thing. So like, I don't, now I sound like a boomer or whatever that's talking about these, uh, these dang kids and their technology. I mean, I'm, I'm a victim of it too, but I, again, we all use them in our business. Like I'm a DJ as well. So I have to stay in tune with the events that are going on and different things. So you almost can't get away from it, but uh, do we just have to continue sort of synergistically living with this stuff? Or do you think there's going to be a sort of overhaul of the system maybe where we change things? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, if I could answer that question, I could get rich, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm like you, you know, I, I can argue both sides of that. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I only got a cell phone three years ago. <clears throat> I didn't really need one, you know, that, that my wife has one and, and like that. And so I, I, I didn't need one. And then uh, I got one. And now, uh, you know, I don't want to be without it. Uh, <laughs> but I make a real studied point of not getting out when I'm outside of the house, you know, on a walk or something. I get it out when I want to do something with it. But uh, you know, I take it because it counts my steps. I like that. So I take it on my walk with me. But I, I keep it in airplane mode so nobody can call me and interrupt me. Uh, and I sometimes will take a, a three or four day technology break where I don't turn my computer on. Now, you can't do that. Younger people can't do that. People involved in the business world can't do that. But any way that you can take a break from technology, I think is going to be good for you. And <clears throat> like what happened to me a couple of weeks ago, my, my computer crashed. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't back up everything. Unlike most people, I know they back everything up all the time, but uh, <laughs> I didn't have everything backed up. And one thing I didn't have backed up, for example, was all my bookmarks. And now I don't have, I only have like, five or six bookmarks and I'm making a point of not getting more bookmarks. You know, ah. It's cleaned me up a little bit. I, I changed my operating system. I've been using uh, Ubuntu for like six, seven years, but I'm, I changed to MX Linux and the brave browser. And it's like DOS. It just snaps. It's so fast and secure. Hmm. And, and so I've really streamlined down my technology to where I no longer feel like I'm burdened by it. And, and I can just go out and use it for what I want and then get away from it. Uh, yeah, now, you know, it's, it's, I couldn't do what I'm doing right now without technology. I'm, I'm writing a book about the fifties now and I'm constantly researching things. I'd have to be living in a library otherwise. So, <laughs> right, right. you know, it's, it's very, it's very good as long as you don't let it get a hold of you. <clears throat> yeah. So I guess it's, you know, technology is, it's just, it's going to keep going and there's no change. Uh, the, the only constant is change. And yeah. so we're just dealing with this change. And, but uh, I think that you're right. Uh, and you see that more often people taking breaks, whether it's from specific social media sites, like a Twitter break for a month or whatever it is. But that is important. I think for my generation and uh, the ones uh, to come after, because, um, or maybe it'll just, maybe I'm, I don't know. And I'm what I'm talking about. And we're just going to really become that hologram uh, thing that Terrence McKenna was Sort of but, you know, you, you really need to pay attention to what's happening in your own life, I think. For example, I, I was on Facebook. Uh, it's been at least seven or eight years since I got off Facebook, maybe even more. I had over 3,000 friends on yeah. Facebook. <laughs> right. And, and I, know, I know it's changed a lot since then. But at the time, people could tag you in a picture, even if you weren't in a picture. And all uh, of a yeah. sudden, all of these crazy psychedelic parties and pictures were showing up that my name was tagged to them. Oh. And I thought, you know, I don't have any control over this, 
So I just went cold turkey and, and dropped Facebook. Uh, and I've, I've lost contact with most of my family that way because they refuse to talk to me other on Facebook. But well, yeah. They're lost. Yeah. But, you know, I, I decided that I didn't want to. And, and I was getting into that where, oh, I got another friend. And, and wait a minute. I don't even know. I don't yeah. know 3000 people, yeah. you know. And, and I was paying attention to their lives. And hell, I've got enough going on in my own life. I don't need to pay attention to all that. Yeah, I think we do need to normalize like it's okay to not have social media or to get off of there. You know, uh, when I mentioned the business world, I'm of a split mind on it because I argue with myself. I said, I don't, you know, I don't like this. I want to take a break from it. I say, well, what if I, I'm going to miss out on a gig because someone's going to try to contact me or, you know, you just kind of convince yourself to, but that's to me, and I'm not a cigarette smoker, but I could imagine it's something like the addiction to cigarettes where it's like, do you really need that thing? It's just a habit. You're convincing yourself you need it. Um, and you do have the power to quit cold turkey because people do it. I know they say it's a hard thing to, to, to quit, but um, uh, I don't know. Maybe the self-discipline um, needs to be more understood or it is something, a tool that we really can use to overcome these algorithms and things that have uh, seemed to uh, taken control of us. Yeah, and and uh, the the AI algorithms are something that uh, we should we can have another conversation sometime yeah, about that because uh, oh, yeah. that that's uh, first of all I'll, I'll just uh, plant the seed. Most of the AI technology that's being developed right now is being developed by young men under thirty. So there's some prejudice coming in there. And yeah, they're all racist. They're very racist, but they're young and they're mainly male. And point. these algorithms are going to be controlling a lot of our lives. It's, cra- it's crazy stuff. Um, Lorenzo, I want to thank you uh, for taking the time again to uh, join us here on the podcast. And we've learned a lot. We've covered a lot of stuff. Um, the podcast is a psychedelic salon. It's available most everywhere. And is there anywhere else people can follow you on uh, social media and that kind of thing? No, just psychedelicsalon.com. That's, that's uh, where I try to focus everything. And uh, there's no ads on it. No, no uh, Google AdWords or anything like that. It's, it's uh, I've had a friends from EFF help me and it, it doesn't track you uh, unless you leave a comment and, and I, I approve all the comments or I disapprove the comments. So it's, it's a pretty safe site to go to if you uh, don't want to be tracked. Very cool. Well, it's been nice to meet you and hopefully you can do this again one day. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Yeah, and we'll come back and talk about AI someday. Sounds perfect to me. All right. Be well. Okay, you too.